It's that we've entitled Pleasing God. Am I on there, Wiley? Thanks. That we've entitled Pleasing God, and this is um, Sermon 4. So what I want to do is kind of set the framework a little bit for how we're approaching this whole issue, and then we're going to get into Psalm 147. So I want you to, I want you to picture a house with me. Okay, we're trying to, over the course of this summer, we're trying to, we're trying to build a house um, that is, uh, that, what, 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 that would look like pleasing God. What would pleasing God look like if it were a house? So, so what we're trying to do is we're, we're in these first, the first three sermons, we were just trying to lay the foundation. So the title of the series that you see behind me is What God Wants, Pleasing God by Pursuing His Will. And the first three sermons were intended to kind of explain that statement. So we, um, we're talking about pleasing God by pursuing his will. So we've talked about what pleasing God looks like and then what it means to pursue his will. Sorry. Turn it up. Turn it on. Oh, thank you. See, I knew I shouldn't have clicked mute and unmute. See, that was my fault. So thank you. Appreciate that. So did you all catch some of that from this mic, or do I need to repeat myself? Okay, we're good? All right, great. Thank you, Wiley. All right, so we, uh, we've laid the foundation in the first three sermons. Now what we're going to get into is um, two sermons on the framework. So imagine the foundation of the house, that's the concrete and all the block that we're building on. Then we're, now we're going to start to put the walls up. Okay, so we're, gonna, we're, we're laying the wood, we're cutting the wood, and we're, we're starting to build the walls and hanging drywall. So that, to, what we're going to look at today is the role of faith and how important faith is in pleasing the Lord. And then next week, Lord willing, we're, we're going to check, we're going to look at the gospel and see how the gospel informs our obedience to God and pleasing him. And then in the kind of the second half of the sermon series, we're going to start bringing the furniture into the house. Okay. So we've laid the foundation. We built the framework. Walls are up. Now, now we're ready to start the furniture and that's going to be kind of the big pieces. There are four times in the new Testament where the writers, either the apostles or even Jesus himself, says, this is the will of the Lord that you do this. So we're going to spend four sermons on each one of those clear statements. I'm going to tell everybody in this room the will of God for your life. <laughs> At least in the big macro sense, right? The, the big picture sense. I'm, I'm, without exception, I know God's will for everybody here. And it's because he's told it in his word what his will is for his people. So that's where we're going to spend four sermons. That's going to be the furniture. We're going to have a couch and a chair and a nice dining room table and some other, maybe a good lazy boy. All right, so uh, we're going to have those in, in the house as well. And then finally, kind of near the end of the sermon series, we're just going to deal with some furnishings, paintings, things like that, some practical kinds of issues of what this looks like. And so some of those furnishings will be pleasing God and pleasing people. How do we navigate that tension? Because that shows up a lot in the New Testament. When are we to please people? When are we not to please people? How does pleasing people relate to pleasing God? And our missionary Heath Dane is going to preach that sermon for us. And then we are going to conclude the series by looking at 10 practices of a God-pleasing church. So that's where we're really going to get on the ground and, 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 and fill out the sermons here. So foundation, framework, Furniture and furnishings. That's kind of where we're going. So we're still building the framework this morning, and that's where we'll be this week and next week. So to build this framework, we're looking at Psalm 147 this morning. And I've entitled the sermon, The Delight of Dependence, Why Pleasing God is a Pleasurable Pursuit. Now, um, I don't assume 
that everyone in, in this room is a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't assume that everyone in this room is actively following Christ uh, with your life. I know some, most of you are, but there are several that aren't, and we're glad that you're here. Um, but what I want to try to do, especially for you this morning, is to convince you that it's in your best interest to please God. It's in your best interest to pursue a life that pleases God. And actually, it's a beautiful and pleasurable thing. You know, so often when we talk about pleasing the Lord, we've got, well, you know, we've got to please the Lord. We can't please ourselves. Well, at a certain level, that's true. But at a certain level, that's profoundly not true. What if there was a way that we could pursue pleasing God that was pleasurable? What if there was a way to pursue God that was, that was enjoyable, that, dare I say it, happy? And so this morning, I hope to lift some of the burden, both off us as believers and maybe that's present in those who are not yet Christians, about the reality that actually pleasing God is an enjoyable and pleasurable thing. And so that's where we're going this morning. So we're going to look at that under three headings. We're mainly going to focus on verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 147. So just those two verses this morning, but we're going to fill it out with some of the other verses in the psalm as well. So let me read verses 10 and 11 for us again, and then we're going to get into the sermon. Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. So that's where we're going this morning. This is all about pleasing God. How do we please God? Well, his delight is not in this, but his delight is in this. And that's what we're going to look at. So first of all, we're going to look at God's displeasure. That is what he doesn't delight in, verse 10. Then we're going to look at God, uh, our dependence and God's delight in that in verse 11. And then we're going to apply it to our lives in various ways. So first of all, let's look at verse 10 and unpack God's displeasure a little bit. So verse 10 says, His delight, or he is not pleased, in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. Now you might ask, wait, why does God not take pleasure in horses and legs? I mean, God loves horses and legs. He made them. Would you, would you hold your finger there in, in Psalm 147 and go over to the book of Job. So Job is the book right before the Psalms. So look at Job chapter 39, just a few pages back before the Psalms. Job 39. And I want you to look at verse 19. Job 39 and verse 19. Job uh, where we read, Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? This is the Lord answering back to Job. Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword upon him. Rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin with fierceness. They're enraged. He swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of a trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! That is the horse. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. So God delights in this. God delights in the fact that human beings don't make the horses do this. God does this. So here we read, though, in Psalm 147 that God doesn't delight in the strength of a horse, but it seems in Psalm, or Job 39 that he does. 
So what are we to make of this? Well, I think it, the answer is quite simple. Horses and legs and things like that, things that God has created, he delights in because he created them. What he does not delight in is when those horses and those legs are depended on at the exclusion of him. That's what he doesn't delight in. That's why it says his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. Now, the strength of the horse and the legs of the man probably refer to an army or a, cal a cavalry or an infantry. A king might boast in his powerful army on horseback or his foot soldiers who are strong and well-trained for battle. Say, so we don't got to worry about those guys. We got strong horses. We got strong men. This battle is going to be taken care of, no problem. The Lord does not delight in that because there is a substitute trust. There's a substitute reliance going on. They're relying on what's not the Lord, something the Lord created, but is not the Lord himself. Now, let me give you briefly three quick reasons why God does not delight in the strength of a horse or the legs of a man. One reason God does not delight in horses and legs, again, is not because he didn't make them, but because what they are in themselves, nor what they are in themselves, but because they serve, as I've already said, as an alternate form of reliance. Listen to Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Says, so there's, that's where horses and chariots become objects of trust and reliance. Some trust in them, we trust in God. Psalm 33, verse 17. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. But, but, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. See, so you've got there leaning upon, well, we've got strong horses, we've got strong warriors, we're going to win this battle. It's a false hope for salvation. So that's one reason that God does not delight in the legs of a horse or, sorry, in the strength of a horse or the legs of a man because they can be an alternate form of reliance. A second reason is that any strength or success that the horse or the man has in the battle ultimately comes from God anyway. That's what he's saying to Saul in Job 39. Do you make the horse do this? Do you make the horse fearless in battle? Who made the horse fearless in battle? God did. You didn't do that to the horse. I did that to the horse. Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory, finish it, belongs to the Lord, right? The victory belongs to the Lord, not the horse. The horse just got ready, but God had to give the victory. And then thirdly and finally, a final reason that God does not delight in the strength of a horse or the legs of a man is because what is relied on gets the glory. What is relied on gets the glory. God is not pleased with people who put their hope in other things because when those things deliver them, they think it's actually those things that deliver them and not the God who enabled them to deliver them. In other words, when we put our hope in things like horses and legs, horses and legs get glory, not God. Who delivers? Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. So when God delivers, God gets the glory. So if we're honest with ourselves, though, this isn't just a problem for other people. <laughs> this is our problem. Our self-reliance, brothers and sisters, as you know from walking with Christ, dies a very slow death. We are repeat offenders. 
when it comes to issues of self-reliance. We suffer from gospel amnesia, gospel forgetfulness. As one writer said, it seems like we are perpetual candidates for summer school in the gospel. <laughs> we spend our lives perpetual candidates for summer school in the gospel. So why is it when feeling discouraged by our circumstances or weighed down by our brokenness or disheartened by some unexpected news, why do we still default to putting our trust ultimately really in ourselves? Which is just our form of horses and legs. Broken cisterns, worthless idols. Why do, why do we do that? Well, we're no different from King Asa. Remember him? During his reign over Judah, King Asa was confronted by two specific crises that tested his dependence on God. In the first instance, he relies on the Lord who delivered him and his kingdom from being destroyed by a huge army. But in the second instance, he turns to the king of Syria for help. We read about this in Second Chronicles 16, verses 7 to 9. I'm not going to turn us there right now. But why did he do this? He trusted in the Lord. He was the king of Judah. He was trusting in the Lord the first time. A huge army was against him. They defeated. They won the battle. And then the second time around, he doesn't trust in the Lord, but he shifts his trust to the king of Syria. Had he learned nothing from his first victory? It is possible that in the second campaign, the thought of relying on God didn't even occur to Asa. The challenge was not as great as the previous one. And besides, there was enough gold, according to Second Chronicles 16, quote, the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house to lure Syria into a treaty and provoke their protection. So he was thinking more politically than spiritually. He was saying, yeah, God needed to deliver us because we didn't have the resources, but now we've got the resources. Now we've got the ability, we've got enough money, we can actually make this work without God. So when all was said and done, you know what happened? His strategy worked. It worked. As long as Asa had the resources and the cleverness to manage the situation on his own, why bother God with it? I mean, hadn't God provided all that treasury? Hadn't God provided all those resources? Of course he did. But what Asa missed is that it was still God's desire and still God's will, that he trusts him. God wants to involve himself in every aspect of the lives of his people. And brothers and sisters, here's where the test of prosperity is so difficult to pass. Because the test of adversity, when you've got no resources and your back's against the wall, it's fairly easy to feel your need for God. It's when things are going really well and you're being blessed and you're being carried along that self-reliance becomes easier and almost it's like it's just running as software in the background. We're not even aware that we're doing it. We just think, hey, God's blessed me. He's helping me. He's carrying me. When in fact, we could be totally walking in our own strength and not even realizing it. And then when a trial hits us, we understand we weren't leaning on the Lord at all. So God wants to involve himself in every aspect of the lives, especially in our times of prosperity, because it's there truly that we're the most vulnerable. So he did not covenant, God did not covenant with the people of Israel just to be present with them in their emergencies. He's like, look, just keep me on speed dial. If things get really bad, call out. But otherwise, just kind of do your thing. He didn't do that, did he? He said, no, I'm going to give you manna every day so that you'll depend on me every day. 
He wanted to be their God, to dwell with them and to, for them to be his people. So God desires that we live in real, moment-by-moment, total dependence on him. And I don't know about you, but I find the same tendency in myself as I see in Asa. I'm not judging him because I'm made of the same stuff. If I have the resources to meet my challenges in life, my first temptation is to rely on those resources. If I'm able to resort to my checkbook, it may not even occur to me to acknowledge my dependence on God. Yet I find these warnings in Scripture. Psalm 62, verse 10. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. Now, I'm not rich, but we are all rich by the world's standards, and we are all prone to dependence on such things. Now, before Israel entered the promised land, God warned them about this. He warned them that the greatest danger they would have was not outside of them, it was inside of them. It was not adversity from outside, it was prosperity from inside. Now, listen to what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Great and great and large cities which they did not build and houses full of good things which they did not fill and drew waters from wells which they did not dig and ate of the vineyards and olive trees which they did not plant so that when they had eaten and they were full, they forgot the Lord who brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. It was the blessings of God that ruined them. It ruined them. And Scotty Smith speaks for all of us when he says the following. He says, whenever I feel disconnected from God or get disappointed with me, whenever I experience the accusations and condemnation of the enemy, whenever I see other believers more zealous, missionaries more passionate, young converts more committed, or friends more generous, my default mode's to lace up my running shoes and get busy for God. Instead of coming to him, for fellowship and renewal in the gospel, I start running to do something to fuel my pride and tame my conscience. I put my good feelings ahead of God's declared delight. I put pleasing me ahead of pleasing him. So that, brothers and sisters, is what God takes displeasure in, self-reliance and self-dependence. Secondly, let's consider what he takes great joy in, which is our dependence. Verse 11, let's read it again in Psalm 147. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So I love this verse because it kind of juxtaposes two things we don't typically hold together. It's like fear and love. Huh? I don't necessarily love people I fear. (laughs) But in the case of God, what the essence of fearing him is, is hoping in his love for you. That's the essence of what it means to regard God as significant and worthy of trust. So what the psalmist is saying here is that instead of trying to figure things out or be our own savior or act like fatherless orphans or give in to despair or look for someone to blame or someplace to run, we declare that our hope is in God's steadfast, unwavering, endless, more than sufficient, peace-giving love. That's where our hope is. Our hope is in His steadfast love, not in our resolve to do a better job, not in our attempts to make up for our failures, our blunders, and our sins, not in our circumstances that will be less than steadfast until Jesus returns. God does not find any pleasure or delight 
in the strength or movement of our legs in what we can do for him. He finds great pleasure as we put our hope in what he's already done for us. Psalm 149, verse 4. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. The Lord does not take pleasure, ultimately. I'm not, and I know, I, he does take pleasure in our good and righteous works. He's pleased by them. But the chief object of his pleasure is you, as his, as his daughter, as his son. He loves you because he loves you. He loved you before you ever did anything good for him. And he loved you far before while you were still his enemy. And if he loved us that way, then we will always be his, the objects of his pleasure now that we're in Christ. To those who look away, God says, from all other sources of security and entrust themselves completely to me, I take deep and lasting pleasure in them. And comparatively speaking, horses and legs are nothing compared to the greatness of God. They are nothing. Think about Psalm 76, verse 6. At your rebuke, both rider and horse lay stunned. <laughs> That's what the psalmist says about God. At your rebuke, the horse and the rider are put in the dust. The strongest, the mightiest warriors, the strongest horses, they're laid low. So the argument here is, listen, when the Lord is offering himself as our object of trust, how foolish is it to look to something else? It's God offering himself to you to say, I will be all you need. Sam Storm says, God revels in your holy reverence. He finds inexpressible joy when he, not money or power or political gain, is the object of your hope. God delights in this because it magnifies his supremacy and all sufficiency to be and do for his people what earthly stuff can't. Now let's think about all that Psalm 147 has revealed to us about God. This psalm says that God's the one who puts those clouds up in the sky. See verse 8? He covers the heavens with clouds. He chooses when and where and how much rain will fall today and tomorrow and any other future, and any other future day. He tends every millimeter of every blade of grass that our deacon Jeff Cotiller so faithfully mows every week during the summer. All those blades of grass, God knows how many are out there. God alone crafts every snowflake that falls, fashions every inch of frost, and decides just how cold it will be. Look at verses 16 and 17. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? Every aspect of our winters is scripted and conducted by him, including precisely when they end. It seems to be earlier and earlier in our town. Psalm 147, verse 18, he sends out his word and melts them. That's melts the, melts the ice, melts the snow, and makes his wind blow and the waters flow. God alone feeds the elephants and the sharks and the squirrels, and even the ants. Look at verse 9. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. When a newborn bird whimpers in hunger, God sends an angel to take care of it. Or something like that. He makes sure they get fed. 
God alone heals the wounds of the brokenhearted. Look at verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Now, while very few of us are ever tempted to think that we could bring rain or snow or count the stars, we might be tempted to think we can heal a broken heart. You can't. God does that. We might imagine that we can compensate for someone's loss or talk someone out of despair or save someone's marriage. You can't. Psalm 147 says that God is the one who heals. He's the one who heals the brokenhearted. God alone makes peace. Look at verse 14. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. We cannot achieve real peace in families or friendships or a church or a nation unless God quiets the conflict, which is what we're praying these days, and awakens harmony. If we think we can achieve peace without God, we've not understood peace or God. And then one more thing. Look at verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. Now think about this. Our power is small. It's often failing. But His power is abundant and never exhausted. Our understanding is limited and often flawed. But His understanding is universal. So, brothers and sisters, if God puts the clouds in the sky and clothes the grass of the field and sends rain on the earth, and snowflakes, and frost, and cold, and winters, and feeds elephants, and sharks, and squirrels, and ants, and birds, and counts every star, not only counts them, has named them all, who heals and binds up the brokenhearted, and who makes peace, why on earth would we ever rely on anyone else? Why would we rely on anything or anyone else? Who else can do that? That's the argument of the psalm. If God does all that, We are foolish to look to alternate sources of reliance than Him. So can you see, brothers and sisters, why self-reliance is such an offense to God? It says that we're stronger than what He's able to do. We look at God and we say, look, I know I can't make winter, I can't change the seasons, I don't even know, I can't even get close to the stars, but I can do this. God says, that is absolute foolishness. As Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. Why is it something in which God finds no delight, this self-reliance? Because in substituting an alternate object of trust in God's place, we say that 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 alternate object is bigger than this. That that alternate object can deliver the snow. That that alternate object can deliver healing. That that alternate object can deliver peace. That that, and you know what that is? Idolatry. Idolatry is what that is. It bears false witness. It screams lies about God. Ascribing power to something much, much smaller when only God is truly able. Now, there are at least two reasons why we would do well to never forget this. First, our day-to-day acknowledgement of our most basic human needs, keeps our eyes on God. Look quickly, if you in my Bible, it's on the opposite page, but Psalm 145, verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, God says, Psalm 145, verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. See, all of creation, whether we know it or not, or are conscious of it or not, they're, they're looking to God. <laughs> Go out and you listen to those birds. They're chirping for God. 
You're chirping for God. And when you see that squirrel run across the street with that nut and you try to swerve not to kill it, you may have to kill it if you don't want to kill yourself, but that's God giving that squirrel, taking care of it. So it's these sorts of things that are to wake us up like, wow, look at how God provides for his creation. He's going to provide for me because I'm his image. That squirrel isn't. I'm his image bearer. I'm I'm the crown of his creation. So every negative emotion, every legitimate need we have, such as fear or despair or legitimate need, is... God calls us to bring it to him. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, make your requests known to God. And this is how we lose awareness of God's continued presence when we're not recognizing that, that he's the giver of all things and that we are receivers. Second, we can be certain that a day will come with a challenge or a hardship or an ordeal that will demand of us resources that we do not have. And if we've not learned God's faithfulness in the normal daily routine of life, we're not likely to suddenly learn the calm assurance of faith when we get hit by all of life's inevitable tests and trials. Think about, again, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. What was their first obstacle? They were to go and possess the land um, that, was, that, was, that was basically walled in at that point, the possessing of the land of promise that was walled that was the walled city of Jericho, which was an important and formidable outpost that was protecting Canaan's eastern border. So, following the strategy that God gave Joshua, what was it? To march around the city, remember, in silence for six days, then raise a shout and sound trumpets on the seventh day, and they would witness the victory of God in the new land, which sounds absolutely foolish. They're not doing anything but walking around, and then they're going to blow a trumpet and the walls are going to come down. It's like, But you know what happened? They did it, and God delivered. (laughs) Exactly. But what happened immediately after that? Well, after Jericho, there was a smaller village, a much tinier outpost called Ai that blocked their path. And after assessing their defenses, they pulled an Asa. They did an Asa. A few of Joshua's officers recommended that Israel not bother to deploy its entire army and they, they should just be contingent on the two or 3,000 troops that could easily take the city. And do you see how they shifted from dependence to presumption? So quick. It's so subtle, especially on the heels of blessing. We have to be so careful that when we are living in blessing and joy that we don't take that for granted and that we continue to look to our God. The shift was that easy for the people of Israel. AI was no threat. It was nothing like Jericho. And they might have thought, God's given us the resources just like Asa. God doesn't want to be bothered with this. He wants to be bothered with Jericho, but he doesn't want to be bothered with these small little villages. But that's not the case. Israel got sacked. And they got routed at AI. And they were prevented, which prevented Joshua and his officers at that point from moving forward because they did not fully understand their dependence on God for every step they took to get the land. So like Israel, brothers and sisters, our shift from dependence to presumption, it's almost imperceptible. Yes, we can be truly grateful for when God intervenes and wins an important victory in our lives, but immediately afterward, we venture forward on our own, and if we do not, if we're not careful, we think we don't have to depend upon God in the small things. 
Here's the way one writer put it. He said, dependence on God is not something we muster in emergencies. It's the realization that apart from his will, we cannot even presume our next breath. Dependence sees God as being everything. Presumption sees him as one resource among many. Dependence is an expression of faith. Presumption is an act of pride. Dependence is confidence in God. Presumption trusts the arm of the flesh. Dependence surrenders the need to control everything. Presumption attempts to seize God's throne. Let me conclude here with some applications for us in light of what we've considered. God's dependence and our, or God's delight in our dependence and our proneness to be independent. I want to say this. Brothers and sisters, this isn't an all or nothing reality, okay? It's not like God only delights in those who wholly and completely depend on him and never struggle with that. Now, the story of the Bible is God's people struggling to depend on him and God repeatedly sending reminders of why they need to depend on him. Listen, God loves us. And if you want to know, this is the way we can begin to see trials as expressions of God's love. Because when God sends things, God is gracious to send things into our lives from time to time that, that rock our world a little bit, that challenge us, and that make us feel our need for dependence on him. You know what that is? That's fatherly rescuing grace at work in your life. He's not letting you go on in independence. He's going to send it at the right time in the right measure. He's not just going to beat you up or whack you all the time. He's going to, in his lovingly, fatherly wisdom, he will at times say, okay, taste the bitterness of that. And he'll step back and he'll let you have your way and he'll let you do your thing and he'll let you try to do it yourself. And you fall on your face and you realize, I should have trusted God and God wakes you up and he brings you back. That's that, and that happens over and over and over again in our lives. So I don't want you to think that, that well, I don't, I don't depend upon God enough. He can never take delight in me. Yes, you do if you're his child. You're, always, you're, de- you're either depending on him, you're in a season where you're straying, but you're coming back to depend on him. He will make sure of it if you're his child. But I want you to be refreshed this morning. I don't want this to be... Uh, I don't want you to hear this as a command, like, you better hope in God, you better trust God, you want him to delight in you, don't you? That's not the emphasis. The emphasis here is we as God's people do. We at times shift our allegiance, and we need to be aware of that. That's why we've talked about that. But the overwhelming emphasis of Psalm 147 is God takes pleasure in you if you hope in his love. So what do you do if you feel like you're not relying on him? What What does Psalm 147 tell you to do? Hope in his love, that he still loves you. So that pleases God. You get it? When you recognize you're not even depending on God, and you should be, what are you supposed to do? Try harder? No. That just reinforces the problem. (laughs) That's putting strength in horses and legs again. You collapse on him. You say, God, I'm sorry. You have not been my hope. You are my hope. And you know what he says? I knew that all along. I knew that all along. Of course I'm your hope. Of course I'm your hope. I'm glad we're waking you up to that. So let me, let me conclude by just giving us some gospel encouragement. And uh, I, wanted, I want you to turn to Zephaniah, the book of Zephaniah. This is the last passage we're going to look at. Zephaniah is one of the last books in the Old Testament. If you hit Matthew, you've gone too far. But if you go back through what I call the eight Z's, That's Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. 
Um, those are the eight Z's in the Bible. You'll see Zephaniah right before Haggai. It's a small book, so you can miss it, but um, Zephaniah chapter 3 has one of the most precious and I believe um, powerful verses on what God's delight actually looks like in us as his people. So let's read Zephaniah chapter 3 and uh, verse 17, and then we're going to apply this and uh, we'll wrap up. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. It's almost like he's asking, he's just saying, I'm here to be your dependence. I'm here to save you. I'm here to carry you. I'm mighty. I'll do it. And then notice what he does. He will rejoice over you. He takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Now, what does that pleasure look like? He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, this is the way God describes how he delights in us. You know, when we gather for worship, we're not the only ones who are singing. Now, just to be clear, God's not worshiping you. Okay, he's not worshiping me either, but he's singing over his people because he delights in his people and he takes pleasure in his people. Here's what John Piper says in trying to describe what the singing of God must sound like. He says, what do you hear when you imagine the voice of God singing? I hear the booming of Niagara Falls, John Hogue, mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain spring. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with a kitten's purr. I hear the power of an East Coast hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. And I hear the unimaginable roar of the sun 865,000 miles thick, 1.3 million times bigger than the earth, and nothing but fire mingled with tender, warm crackling of logs in the living room on a cozy winter's night. And when I hear this singing, I stand dumbfounded, staggered, speechless, that he's singing over me. One who has dishonored him so many times and in so many ways, it's almost too good to be true. When you read verses like this, this is the kind of stuff, you know, I struggle to believe a lot of things about God. This, this is one of them. <laughs> How in the world, God? It is almost too good to be true, but it's not too good to be true. And Zephaniah labors in this passage to overcome every obstacle that would keep us from believing and feeling that these things are true and that God enjoys you, he takes pleasure in you, and he sings over you. So let me conclude with five objections that we kind of throw at this as believers. One objection is, Pastor Mark, you don't understand. I'm too guilty. I'm too unworthy. My sin's too great. God could never rejoice over me. Look at verse 15. Zephaniah, we're in Zephaniah 3. I want you to look at verse 15, two verses back. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Did you know that the Lord has taken away, if you're in Christ this morning, the Lord has taken away his judgments against you? Why? Because he charged them to Christ. He charged your judgment to Jesus. And he's removed his judgment from you. So you never have to feel, I'm too unworthy, I'm too guilty, my sin is too great. No, your Savior's greater. Second objection, I'm surrounded, I've got so many obstacles, I've got so many difficulties. 
I can never believe this because the challenges are too severe in my life. Look at verse 17 of Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3.17, again, where he says at the beginning, the Lord is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. A mighty one. And then verse 19, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise. See, the Lord says there's no obstacle that I'm not going to overcome for my people. None. Another objection. Yeah, God is great and God is holy. He's, too, he's, he's big. He's amazing. He's far from me. I'm very small. I'm a nobody. The world's a huge place. It has people a lot more important in it than me. But that's not what God says. That God says the Lord's in your midst. The Lord's in your midst. He doesn't qualify. He doesn't say the Lord's, are, the Lord's in the midst of, of the people that really trust him. No, the Lord's in the midst of his people. In fact, Isaiah 57, 15 says that the only requirement for God to dwell in your midst is that you come with a humble and broken and contrite heart. That's who he dwells with. He dwells with those who are humble and broken. But you say, objection four, I'm a slave to my shame. I've been scoffed at, manipulated, threatened, and slandered. But look at verse 19 again. He says, I'm going to deal with all that. I will deal with your oppressors. I'll save the lame and gather the outcast." But what if I blow it again? Will God continue to receive me? Look at verse 12. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Listen, brothers and sisters, you don't have to be worried that God will ever cast you off as his child. Remember Psalm 103? And with this, I'm going to prepare to conclude. Psalm 103, God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, I want to ask you, how far is the east from the west? Let me give you an approximation. The Hubble telescope has given us breathtaking pictures of a galaxy about 13 billion light years from Earth. Yes, I said that, 13 billion light years. Now, remember, a light year is just a short distance of 6 trillion miles. It's just a hop, skip, and it's basically, it's basically here to fill pot. <laughs> now, so if, if, if a light year is 6 trillion miles, math people, what would 13 billion, with a, with a Hubble telescope being able to scan out 13 billion, that would put this galaxy that the Hubble telescope can see at 78 sextillion miles. That's 21 zeros. 21 zeros on that thing, miles from Earth. So... Just to give you an approximation, if you traveled 500 miles per hour, nonstop, literally 60 minutes of every hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, with not a moment's pause or delay, it would only take you 20 quadrillion years to get there. That's 15 zeros. And that would only get you to the farthest point that our best telescopes have yet been able to detect. And if the universe is infinite, as many believe it is, this would be the mere fringe of what lies beyond. So my point is this, the magnitude of such a distance is a pathetically small comparison to the likelihood that you will ever be dealt with according to your sins or repaid according to your iniquities. Because God says, as far as the east is from the west, that doesn't hold a candle to that. If you were ever inclined to try to find your transgressions, to find your sins, so that you can return to placing yourself under their condemnation once again, 
78 sextillion miles is an infinitesimally small fraction of the distance that you have to travel to find them. And even if you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for his mercy at all. So let me conclude with this gospel reminder. John Piper says, Even though we have sinned and desecrated the glory of God, Jesus has been bruised to repair the injury we have done to God's glory. The iniquity of us all has been laid on him. This means that when we take refuge in him, we appear for salvation not on the basis of our track record, which has fallen so far short of God's glory, but on the basis of Jesus' vindication of the Father's glory. In this way, even though we're sinners who have dishonored God's glory, the glory of God becomes the foundation of our appeal, for we are hiding in the one who lived and died and rose again to glorify the passion of God for his name and the mercy of God to save. See, when you bank on Christ, you glorify God because reliance on Christ glorifies the Father. And so that's what we're talking about here. So what's the only appropriate response to this? Psalm 147 tells us in four places. Verse 1, verse 7, verse 12, and 20. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's the response. That's the application of the sermon. God takes pleasure in you. Take pleasure in him. That's the application. Don't be afraid to, join, to enjoy God. Singing and celebrating the supremacy of God is good and pleasant and fitting, is what Psalm 147 verse 1 says. If for no other reason, then that's what you were created and redeemed to do. Fish swim in water, birds fly in the air, the redeemed revel in God. That's just the way it works. So the first step to pleasing God is not to get to work, but to rely on Christ's work. The first step to pleasing God is to forsake self-reliance and embrace God-dependence, hope completely in Him. And as a sinner with no righteousness of my own, what command would I rather hear than this? Mark Redfern, you hope in my love. I'll take it, God. I'll take it. That's why pleasing God is pleasurable. Because what God asks of us is to enjoy His love and to walk in His love. That's what pleases him. Brothers and sisters, what could be more pleasurable than that? I don't think anything. I'll conclude with this quote from John Calvin. The church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news make people happy. Happy people sing. But then too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. Ray Ortland commenting on this says, Every church should put a notice on its front door. All face-saving moralists take warning. Within these doors, your chilly pride is in danger of melting into exuberant joy. Enter at your own risk. But all sinners, depressed with guilt, are welcome. Christianity throbs with holy joy for bad people. God made it that way. The test of a church's faith is not only the wording of its creed, but also the gladness of its worship. The gospel demands a carefree spirit. If we aren't going to hell anymore, if we stand to inherit every blessing Almighty God can think of, if nothing can stand in the way of our restored humanness because it's all ours through the merit of Christ, the friend of sinners, if that can't make us smile, what can? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of meditating in and on Psalm 147 this morning. Thank you that you have revealed to us your heart in this passage, that your pleasure is found in our hope in you, 
that the way we please you is not first and foremost to, to pull up our boots and tighten our belts and straighten up our backs and, and get to work, but the way that we please you is by resting. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's obeying that command that we please you. May we do it again this morning. May those of us in this room who are praying with us now, who have yet to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, may they realize that all they need is need. All they need is need. They don't need anything else but the need for Christ. And may they cry out to you and call upon you and turn from their sin and embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, even at this moment in this time together. We ask all this for the glory of Christ with gladness in our hearts. Amen.